According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures, as always. Join me, if you would, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27. We're beginning a new episode this morning, episode 35, and I've actually combined... Episodes 35, 36, 37, and 38 will all be combined into a single outline. Episode 35, Led to Golgotha. Episode 36, Six Events of the First Three Hours on the Cross. Episode 37, Last Three Hours on the Cross. And then Episode 38, Events Attending Jesus' Death. Uh, almost added a fifth episode, 39, is his burial, but uh, we'll go ahead and handle that as a separate outline and development and uh, take it independently. Four is probably the most we ever want to, you know, bite, chew at one bite, as it were, so uh, there it is. I went ahead and put the scriptures on there as separate items, uh, so you can see there's four parentheses of scriptures in a row, top to bottom. They match those episodes, 35, 36, 37, 38. So if you're looking in on the, on the slide and you want to break down each individual episode in the uh, parallel text, you can. You'll note that uh, the fourth one does not have uh, verses in the Gospel of John. Uh, that it's only the first three that have verses in the Gospel of John. And that's a slightly misleading because... Um, some of the items that are mentioned in episode 38 in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are still included. For example, the, the list of names of women that are standing at the cross observing uh, the crucifixion. Um, they, those women are listed in Matthew and Mark under episode 38. And, uh, but they're listed in John under episode 37. And so they actually are included there in uh, those verses in John 19. So you can... Uh, Take a look at those for what they are. Effectively, it's Matthew 27, verses 31 through 56. Uh, Mark 15, starting in verse 20, taking you down through verse 41. Luke 23, starting in verse 26 and going to verse 49. And then John 19, starting in verse 16 and going all the way down through verse 30. So we have substantial portions of every single one of these chapters, and you would expect that. Um, we're, we're finally at the cross, 429 hours into this study, and we've reached the cross. All right, And so you can expect this is uh, something we're going to spend some time with. <laughs> uh, anyone dispute that uh, this is a rather important uh, portion of our Bibles? This is, this is the crescendo of why Christ came. He came to do this work. And having fulfilled the purpose for his life, he's now prepared to achieve the purpose for his death. And that's uh, what we want to understand here as we look at Calvary. All right, so Matthew 27. Starting in verse 31, it says, uh, After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put on his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up this charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, verse 41, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Verse 44, the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. 
Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. That would be from noon to 3 p.m. in the afternoon. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Word for word out of the Hebrew text of Psalm 22. And some of those who were standing there, verse 47, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. No, he wasn't. Maybe it sounded like that with Eli, Eli. Um, There's a a sound similarity uh, related to Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. This, by the way, this, these details from 52 and 53 are not recorded in Mark, Luke, or John. Uh, Matthew is the only gospel record of this event. And uh, so the tombs were opened, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Many women were there, verse 55, looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Okay, so that's 31 through 56, and that takes us through all four of the events that we're going to be studying in the course of this outline. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to ask God the Father to set aside distractions and to bless our time in His Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have to assemble together. We thank you for this day and uh, today's message and the message in the coming weeks. Father, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and in particular, Father, as we look at the cross, Father, um, there's just so much that, uh, that goes into this. It's, there's so much meaning, Father, that this... Uh, your son's faithfulness uh, means to each one of us. Father, uh, I pray that we'll be able to study it uh, effectively. pray that we'll be able to appreciate the totality of the, uh, the work that your son achieved. Um, and then to be able to do so in a, in a clear and objective fashion, Father. Um, Recognizing, Father, that obviously it's a personal study. Obviously, each one of us is born again and redeemed. And because of his faithfulness on this cross, Father, we have eternal life. Uh, I do pray, though, that you would help us to step back, perhaps just a step, and uh, approach this study with the objectivity of your perspective and not our own. That uh, we would understand that there was much more going on than simply saving me. Father, I pray that we would understand the totality of every work that was achieved between you and your Son on this this powerful event. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. I think um, for the time being we'll hold off on the other accounts. The synoptics are largely similar. I think you'll notice perhaps uh, a few differences here and there in Luke, for example, is when you have the uh, the specific uh, uh, repentant thief in Matthew, Mark, and John, they're all rather, uh, both of them are, are rather abusive and, and ugly towards the Lord. Uh, it is in the Gospel of Luke, though, that you have the detail of the one who had his change of thinking, whereby he, uh, he actually asked the Lord to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. So we'll notice that. Likewise, in John, we have the only Gospel account that, that details Mary, the mother of our Savior, being at the cross, and the... Uh, uh, determination that Jesus had that, that she needed to be handed into John's care and not into one of his brother's care. That's recorded in the Gospel of John, not in the Synoptic Gospel. So you'll, you'll start to observe some of the things that are distinct here and there. Uh, we start, though, 
Let's go ahead and begin with our first study. Point one, the Roman soldiers led Jesus to Golgotha. The Roman soldiers led Jesus to Golgotha. We reach our third G, from Gethsemane to Gabatha to Golgotha. And uh, the three G's, as it were, in the uh, Aramaic expressions for these places. The Garden of Gethsemane, the night before when he uh, was sorrowful to the point of death, when the Father crushed him in his spirit, and when he was in agreement with the Father's purpose that he would go to the cross, Um, when he said, not my will, but thine be done. And he had his volitional victory the night before. That was in Gethsemane. And then he stood before Pilate in the judgment seat, the the secular judgment seat of the Roman authority. And that was Gabatha, the place called the pavement. And now he finally reaches the third G, Golgotha, the place of a skull. And uh, (laughs) why was it called the place of a skull? Um, lots of guessing, and no one uh, today uh, knows for sure. Uh, we'll discuss the, the potential locations where that might have been and, uh, and so forth. So the Roman soldiers led him to Golgotha. And the first item of business is the uh, drafting of uh, Simon to carry his cross. And so, uh, again, verse 32, as they were coming out, coming out of the praetorium, coming out of the Roman uh, property there, the, the Gabatha judgment seat. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And these accounts are rather uh, identical. A few details are added by Mark, for example, that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Uh, another detail in Luke that said he was coming in from the country, and uh, which is interesting. In other words, that he, he was originally a native of Cyrene, but lo- lately he has not really been much time in Cyrene, that he's actually been in the country uh, recently, coming in from the country, we're told. Luke 23:36. 26. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country. What was he doing in the country? Why was he coming in? Doesn't say. And placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And so, you know, it is interesting. Uh, if he was, the movies portray it that he tried to carry it. He got part way and the strength gave out. And then he, he would keep dropping it. And all these very melodramatic uh, dropping of the cross and close-up shots on his anguished face. Uh, and then finally, when they just give up on the fact, they say, well, you're pathetic, you're worthless, and they grab a guy and say, you carry this cross now. Well, we don't really get that in the gospel records. It appears from the very beginning that as they departed from the uh, scourging, uh, first item of business in all of these gospel records is grabbing this uh, Simon character and uh, forcing him to do this. Uh, the Mark record highlights his two children. Why is that important? Mark 15, there you go with your why questions again. Why questions don't always have answers. Um, Mark 15, let him out to, be cru- to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And whether or not these are the same Alexander and Rufuses that we know about later in the Bible is impossible to determine. Uh, there is a Rufus that's mentioned in Romans 16, a choice man, a, uh, someone that Paul considers a kinsman. In other words, that's you know Rufus has a, a mother that Paul claims is his mother. And... Um, Alexander, uh, for the most part, is a bad guy. We see a, uh, a couple of Alexanders that are hostile to Paul's ministry and so forth. So possibly the, the same Alexander. There's just no way to know. Uh, but he's pressed into service. Cyrene is uh, an interesting location on the north coast of Africa. Today would be considered Libya, you know, not too far from the, the Benghazi location where our ambassador was killed uh, last year. Uh, Cyrene was a place of a prominent Christian church for the early centuries until uh, the Arabs swept through and uh, massacred the Christians and forced the conversion to Islam. But uh, Cyrene was a center of Christianity for the, for the first several centuries in, uh, in the church. Mentioned three more times in the New Testament, all in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6 and verse 9, Acts 11.20 and Acts 13.1. 
Acts 6, 9, 11, 20, and 13, 1. Uh, Cyrene was a Jewish location. We have uh, records of uh, significant Jewish population in Cyrene and uh, synagogues and so forth that were located there. Simon is a Jewish name. It is a Hebrew name, and we expect that he himself is Jewish. Acts 6, the choosing of the seven, the original proto-deacons here. Stephen, full of grace and power, is performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some, of, uh, but some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, also on the north coast of Africa, a little bit east of Cyrene, uh, to modern uh, Egypt today, um, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so this synagogue of the freedmen and uh, reference to their uh, fervent uh, loyalty to Jewish teaching, to Hebrew teaching in opposition to what, uh, what Stephen was preaching there on that occasion. Over to chapter 11 and verse 20, we know it's something quite different. Those who were scattered, verse 19, because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, so there's the Cyrene, uh, same Cyrene here that Simon was from, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, why would they do that? Okay. There's another one of those why questions. We don't, <laughs> don't always have answers to our why questions, do we? But it is noteworthy that we have, uh, in one chapter, we have uh, Jewish uh, individuals from Cyrene that are very hostile to the Christian message. Uh, and now we've got um, believers here from Cyrene that are not hostile to the Christian message at all. In fact, they are so positive of the Christian message that they are not limiting it to a Jewish audience. They're actually ministering to the Greeks, to the Gentiles in, uh, in Antioch. Uh, did Simon have any role to play in that? We've got no way to know. No way to know. Uh, he disappears after he gets Jesus successfully to Golgotha. He never appears again anywhere in the Gospels or the book of Acts and so forth. Finally, then in chapter 13, there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So if there were prophets and teachers, uh, my suspicion is, is uh, to start answering some of those whys. Why were uh, why were why was Lucius of Cyrene? Why was he in Antioch? Well, if he was a prophet, I suspect that the Holy Spirit uh, said, "Hey, pack your bags and go to Antioch." <laughs> that there's a wide open door of effective service there. You know, how was it that Barnabas ended up in Antioch? How was it that Paul ended up in Antioch? All right, different aspects there. So those are our references to uh, to Cyrene. What we have here is a prime example of going the extra mile. Matthew 5.41. Jesus actually preached this in his Sermon on the Mount. Simon of Cyrene will stand for all eternity as the prime example of going the extra mile. If you are pressed into service, go. <laughs> all right. If you're pressed into service, go. And Jesus says this. Matthew 5.41. They say, well, this would never happen today. Oh, really? You believe secular government would never order you to do something? All right. Matthew 5.41. Now, this is, there's a much larger context with respect to this as far as... Um, Uh, replacing the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth standard. Uh, in other words, with, I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. So if, if there's a, a personal offense and you've been insulted, 
Are you going to take offense and demand your uh, vengeance? Well, that's not our stewardship. Our stewardship is to be an imitator of Christ. And he was abused. He was insulted. You know, a, a slap in the face. Is that, uh, is that the worst thing you're going you're to encounter here in life? Um, and by the way, this is in a personal offense, not in a, this is not in a, uh, <laughs> on a national level. This is not if your nation is attacked by a foreign military, do you have, does your nation have the right to defend itself? Does your nation have the right to maintain a standing army? Should you have a, this is not a passage that condones, uh, pacifism on a, on a uh, national basis. And nor does it prohibit self-defense. If somebody's coming at you with a sword, and you've got a sword, then you defend yourself. This deals with a slap in the face. This deals with the, uh, the insults that can occur. And when blessed are you when men insult you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. You understand. So turn the other cheek. If anyone wants to sue you to take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now who would force you to go a mile? This is what a lot of folks wonder about. Who would force you to go a mile? I mean, does anybody put a gun to your head and say, I want you to walk a mile? You know, who does that? Well, government agencies will do that. Soldiers will do that in particular cases. Today, you can still do that. When I was a police officer, you could do that. You could commandeer a vehicle if you needed transportation. You, and under emergency circumstances, you can say, I'm taking the custody of this vehicle. Um, you can... Um, Different aspects that the Roman Empire could do to say we've got this load, we need we need unloaded, uh, offload this ship, put it in that warehouse. You've got two hours, and uh, any any passerby that you press into service that uh, you know says no thanks, <laughs> there is no no thanks. You do what you're told, and uh, the Romans are very good with their swords if uh, you choose not to. So forcing you to go one mile, uh, carrying a, a, a load, all right? If they run out of uh, slaves, they run out of burden bearers, they grab uh, passers-by. So here's the prime example. Well, go with them too. Go with them too. They're forcing you to do something. Well, don't view it as a forcing. View it as a not, not a have to, but a want to. And say, okay, I can do that. You want more? I'll go a second mile. Different applications there. Anyway, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And uh, the pattern that we have is being an imitator of Christ and the uh, making the application of it there. Anyway, boy, that goes back a ways. When, when did we teach the Sermon on the Mount? So Simon is our example. Simon is our living example of going the extra mile. They arrive at a place called Golgotha, point B. Golgotha is the Aramaic, similar to the Hebrew. Golgoth is Hebrew. Golgotha is uh, Aramaic. Place of a skull. The Greek is kranion. K-R-A-N-I-O-N. Where you think your, your cranium, right? Your, uh, that's where we get our English expression. Kranion, number 2898. Only used four times in the New Testament, and guess what? They're right here. <laughs> okay, they're all in this uh, particular episode. The Septuagint is Gulgoleth. Uh, has a few uses. In 1538, uh, maybe the most uh, common ones we're aware of are Judges 9:53 and 2 Kings 9:35. Judges 9:53. Uh, not only does uh, the the uh, Hebrew have Golgoleth, uh, but the Septuagint has Kronion, just like our Gospel account. Judges 9.53. A certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. And he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, so that it will not be said of me, a woman slew him. So the young man pierced him through, and he died. All right, and then 2 Kings 9.35, another gruesome passage. I like to read these right before lunch. 2 Kings 9.35, the uh, 
death of Jezebel. He said, throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. When he came in, he ate and drank and said, see now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. They went to bury her, but they found nothing more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. And so there's your Golgoth, or in the Septuagint, your Cranion for skull. And uh, therefore they returned and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, The property of Jezreel, the dogs, shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. So Golgotha is Aramaic, Greek is Cranion, uh, Golgoloth is Hebrew, the Latin is Calvary. The Latin is Calvary. Calvaria, plural be Calvariae or Calvariae. Throw an E on the end of Calvaria and you have the plural. It's a feminine noun. Um, and that's where we get most of our hymnology. <laughs> All right? We sing, uh, take me to Calvary. Lest I forget, uh, you know, it's Calvary. It just rhymes better in most hymns rather than Golgotha doesn't rhyme with a whole lot. <laughs> okay, And so, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know why, Calvary has kept captured the, uh, the uh, imagination of Christians now ever since. But there it is. All right. Two competing modern identifications in the map on the right. Um, and that may be too small to see. The um, Does this have a laser on it? I need to get a laser pointer is what I need. Um, but in the uh, the new city up top there, you've got Gordon's Calvary. All right. Uh, do you see Gordon's Calvary up top there? I can, I can, there we go, point to it with my mouse. You see the little hand. And then the other location, the traditional location, the Roman Catholic tradition where Constantine's mother built the church is uh, is right here. This is the traditional location. This is where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is located. This is where the the uh, traditional uh, crucifixion site is located. So whether uh, it is the traditional Church of the Holy Sepulchre or whether it's Gordon's Calvary spot up there, um, who knows? God knows. <laughs> you understand, after the destruction of uh, Jerusalem, the territory itself was so radically changed. Here we go. This will zoom it in. Gordon refers to a British general that uh, had occupied this uh, territory after World War One and had uh, traveled with a lot of the archaeologists and explorers and so forth. And uh, this location was believed to be, because of the physical appearance, because of the the roundness of the particular hill there and some of the holes that look like it could be eye sockets. Um, problem is, is those holes are rather modern. Those, those holes are only a century or two old. And uh, clearly it would not have been the, the circumstance 2,000 years ago. And then there in the, uh, there's the traditional location there. But as far as understanding where you want a picture... This is uh, this is Gordon's Calvary, all right. It's uh, a little bit rounded on the top. They even got some trees on top now. A little bit rounded on the top, and then those caves that look kind of like eye sockets and that. Okay, somebody in the 1800s, somebody in the 1900s, somebody after year 2000 looks at that and goes, "Ooh, place of a skull." But uh, those caves weren't there a couple hundred years ago. They're fairly modern. Another picture of it. They've even got some structures on top of it these days. Almost looks like a space alien, doesn't it? <laughs> like the cover of Michael Heiser's book, The Facade. Similar pictures, all of the same thing. This diagram shows the same thing the other diagram does. The two, the traditional site, the other, the alternate site, which is called Gordon's site. But honestly, could it have been a third place? Sure. The only description we have in Scripture was took him out, out to a place. There is uh, an indication that there were many passers-by, and so it's likely that it was near a roadway. It was likely near an entrance, near a, perhaps a city gate. But even that is guesswork. 
at, uh, at this point of time. On the way, let's go to Luke 23. Jesus had one more Bible class to teach. Luke 23. You'd think by now he's survived his scourging and he's on his way to the cross. He could take a day off, right, and quit preaching and just, you know, go and redeem everybody. But no, he's got another message to deliver. And it's delivered in Luke 23, verses 27 through 31. Point C in the outline, Jesus delivered a parting message to the daughters of Jerusalem. Daughters of Jerusalem. Interesting expression. Luke 23, verses 27 through 31. And it's not a happy message. <laughs> okay. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, so he's not addressing the crowds in general, but the weeping women specifically. And, you know, four of which are actually going to keep following him and stand there and observe the entire crucifixion. Uh, quite a bit I was reading about how, you know, men would be considered a threat and they would be kept to a minimum or kept at a distance. Uh, women would not be considered a threat, so the soldiers would allow them to get closer and uh, even standing at the foot of the cross if they wanted to. Um, so turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. So the, the weeping activity itself is not illegitimate. The weeping activity itself is appropriate. Uh, Ecclesiastes says there is a time to weep. And Jesus says this is such a time. But it's not time for weeping for me. It's time for weeping for you. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren. That, that's never happened prior to this. All right. In the ancient world, uh, the, the being barren was considered a curse. Uh, the, the mark of uh, fruitfulness was, uh, was a, a point of honor for women. And, and uh, barrenness was considered a curse. Well, days are coming when uh, the barren will be the blessed. And the wombs that never bore. And the breasts that never nursed. Well, why is that? Because tribulation is coming. And babies slow you down. <laughs> Alright? And if you're pregnant when you're trying to run, you're not going to get too far. And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us. And to the hills, cover us. Prophetic uh, fulfillment, actually. This was pro prophesied in the book of Hosea. For if they do these things when the tree is green... What will happen when it is dry? What will happen when it is dry? And um, what a contrast. What a contrast. So, here's his message. Similar to Luke 21:23, and quite the contrast with 11:27. I imagine like uh, most Bible teachers, if you've taught this before, you are comfortable teaching it again. You might modify it slightly. You might add a, a little bit to it. You might uh, focus an aspect of it for an immediate application, depending on who your audience is. But in the Olivet Discourse, he had a very similar message he'd already delivered to his disciples, Luke 21:23. And as I said, it's quite the contrast to how the world normally looks at things. Luke 21, 23. Um, verse 20 says, uh, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So in other words, if you're out in the country, like Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country, then don't come into the city, flee. Those who are in the midst of the city must leave. Those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath for this people. 
and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Keep that passage in mind because we'll be looking at it again uh, in Romans coming up with uh, respect to the uh, different terminology between the times of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles. Then there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars on the earth, dismay among the nations and perplexity. Anyway, he goes on. He's talking about Second Advent, talking about the great tribulation of Israel. And this is why he's telling the women. He's telling the women, don't weep for me. You're the ones. And your babies. You're the ones that are going to be uh, massacred in the, in the great application of God's wrath coming up here in uh, 70 A.D. Now, Similarity and difference. The similarity is to the Olivet Discourse. The difference is uh, in Luke 11.27. Luke 11.27. So I say this is not normal as far as human viewpoint would be concerned, or just not necessarily human viewpoint, but just a, a regular perspective in terms of establishment life. Luke chapter 11 and verse 27. Here's Jesus teaching Bible class. And uh, while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. If you remember this episode, uh, the opportunity that the Lord had to keep temporal life in its proper application and put spiritual life in the forefront. That spiritual life should be what we account our blessings pertaining to the plan of God. On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. And so uh, there you have it. And yet what are, we, what are we dealing with today? We're dealing with more than a billion, almost two billion Mary worshippers on the planet today in terms of the, the central focus of Roman Catholicism. All right, and it's kind of interesting when you speak to different Catholics, finding out from them which which do they honor more, which do they revere more. And uh, sometimes, if they think about it, they'll stop and say, "Oh, well, of course, Jesus is our Savior." But on a practical basis, who do they pray to more often, and who do they think of more often, and who do they who do they trust in more often? And uh, and when when they when they understand that their doctrine portrays Mary as the co-redemptrix. Um, that she was at the foot of the cross ministering. <laughs> well, we're going to see her at the foot of the cross. We're going to see Jesus putting her in John's care. But she is not a priestess. She is not the co-redemptrix. And she is not achieving any priestly function. Um, and uh, it's just it's, just, it's blasphemy from the pit of hell that, that uh, exalts the Queen of Heaven as the co-redemptrix of uh, humanity. Jesus is her Savior. She calls him my Savior. And uh, she needs a Savior like everybody else needs a Savior. All right. The citation from Hosea is also quite fitting. The citation from Hosea is also quite fitting. When you see the citation here in Luke 23 that goes back to Hosea chapter 10. And it's, it's interesting because... Um, of, of all the uh, passages he could have brought into focus here, Hosea chapter 10, you know, it's uh, this was an aspect that he uh, did not bring up in Luke 23. It wasn't a feature. Uh, I'm sorry, Luke 21. It wasn't a feature when he was teaching, uh, teaching this to his disciples. But he does teach it to these women. You see where he identifies, okay, it's a different office, a different audience. We can bring in different passages. Interesting. Uh, the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars. And they will say to the mountains, cover us. And to the hills, fall on us. Part of the judgment that's, that's prophesied, the judgment that's coming. If you back up to verse 3, you find an interesting statement here. Surely now they will say, we have no king. Surely now they will say, we have no king. What was it they shouted when we have no king but Caesar, right? We have no king but Caesar. 
Surely now they will say we have no king, for we do not revere Yahweh. As for the king, what can he do for us? As for the king, what can he do for us? So they speak mere words. They, with worthless oaths, they make covenants and judgments sprout like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. Okay? And it's kind of interesting. Here's Hosea ministering as the northern kingdom is given their final testimony before they're swept away by the Assyrians. And what a picture. What a picture of apostasy. What a picture of Israel and their unbelief. And that's exactly what they were, where the condition they were in when they crucified their Christ. A lot of parallels between uh, Hosea and the crucifixion of Christ. So here's uh, the Lord's final message to the daughters of Jerusalem. All right. Which brings us then to the six events of the first three hours on the cross. Six events. Let me get back to Matthew. We'll use Matthew as our basic outline. Supplement it with the other three. Matthew 27. Six events of the first three hours on the cross. Point two. It's kind of interesting. Um, you know, I did not write this Harmony of the Gospel. Um, we were adapting it from uh, the uh, Nelson book of charts and maps. It's uh, also included in a variety of other sources. I actually have, I think, six sources in my uh, Bible software that all reproduce the exact same harmony of the Gospels. All right. And uh, if I search for six events of the first three hours on the cross, uh, Logos will show me all six of these harmonies of the Gospels in a variety of different study Bibles and commentaries and Bible encyclopedias and Bible dictionaries. And, and uh, like I say, the, the first one I found it from was the, the Thomas Nelson book of uh, charts and maps. Uh, so I think it's, 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 it's a very well done harmony. I enjoy it. We've tweaked it here and there, made a few modifications. We've adjusted the dates because I don't hold to a, a 30 AD crucifixion or a 32 AD crucifixion. We teach a 33 AD crucifixion. So we've adjusted the dates and done some things with it. But every single one of these, all six of these that have six events of the first three hours of the cross, they never then tell you what those six events are. <laughs> all right. And so... I've outlined six. I'm not entirely happy with it. Uh, I've outlined six. I could come up with maybe seven or maybe combine a couple in a different way to get it down to five. Um, in any event, we'll have A, B, C, D, E, F. We'll go ahead and have six subpoints uh, to go with the, the title, the heading. Uh, but one of them is really kind of minor, and uh, we won't spend a whole lot of time on it. But let's start with this one. Jesus refused to have his mind softened. Jesus refused to have his mind softened. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are unanimous in his rejection of the, uh, the sedative that's uh, offered to him here. Matthew 27:34, Mark 15:23, and Luke 23:36. The synoptic gospels are unanimous. Now, when the work is over, he will take a drink. He will take a drink from the sour wine that's offered him on a sponge. Uh, when the work is complete, shortly before he delivers up his spirit. That's at the end, but when the work, when it's over. But before the work starts, he will not have his mind softened. I believe that's the, the impact on this, or the, the application we need to glean. Again, it's a why question. They don't always have answers, but in this case, I think it's clear. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-four. So they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. There's a different additive in uh, Mark 15:23. Does that mean that they're wrong? How do we harmonize this? Mark 15:23. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. So Matthew says it's wine mixed with gall and. Mark says it's wine mixed with myrrh. How do we reconcile that? Luke 23:36. Soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, it says. All right. Reconciliation is, we, do we look at it and say, well, if Matthew's right, Mark has to be wrong? Or do we look at it and we say, Mark must be right, Matthew has to be wrong? 
Or do we look at both and say we don't know who is right, but they can't both be right, so somebody's wrong? Is that how we say it? Or do we look at it and we say they both can be right if, in fact, the mixture had multiple ingredients? All right? It doesn't say it was wine mixed only with myrrh. It doesn't say it was wine mixed only with gall. And so if there are three ingredients or five or six ingredients, it's not wrong to only list one in any of these recorded uh, narratives. In any event, why did the Romans do this? We have uh, records of, of their procedures and their processes and why such a thing would be given to deaden the pain uh, as a sedative, as an opportunity to uh, um, allow the victim to suffer even longer. Okay, Crucifixion is not a short event. They're expected to linger for days on end. The uh, crucifixion of Jesus is rather unique in the sense that he died so quickly. And the Roman soldiers were shocked. They, they went to break his legs and to try to hasten things along, you know, pierce him with a spear and so forth. They found he was already dead. Okay? The other two thieves weren't already dead. They needed their legs broken, but Jesus was already dead. And uh, very unique in that, uh, in that capacity. In any event, I believe refusing to have his mind softened because he had work to do. He had a priestly function to engage in. He had to minister as our Redeemer. And he had to pour out his soul as a sacrifice to the Father. And he wanted to have his maximum faculties. I'm convinced of that. He wanted to have his maximum faculties in order to achieve all the work that the Father had for him to achieve. The idea that he would... Uh, be of diminished capacity is uh, is uh, unthinkable. So he refused to have his mind softened. Secondly, we have the division of his garments. The second event, the division of his garments. And you know, something to keep in mind as we work our way through these six different things that take place, there is more... Um, narrative to these first three hours than to the second three hours. There is more narrative to these events before everything goes dark. And that's unanimous. That's all. Every, every gospel record. By the time things go dark, um, we're not told a whole lot of what happened while it was dark. And then the next thing you know, it's not dark anymore. Now it's the ninth hour. Now he's shouting, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then there's an earthquake. Then the veil splits. Um... We don't have narrative for the darkness like we have for the six events that precede the darkness. And I find that interesting. All right, the divided garments mentioned in all four Gospels. The longer account, uh, the longest of the accounts is in John. Uh, simply, they divided his garments. When they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And uh, one of the perks, as it were, uh, if you're going to be a Roman soldier and you're tasked with the assignment of crucifixion, not an entirely pleasant task to do, and so you get a, a little bit of a perk in the sense that you are allowed to plunder uh, the uh, the victim. He doesn't need his clothes anymore. And uh, a, a good robe or a good set of clothes um, is uh, is worth your time to, to strip off the victim. And uh, particularly if you can be the first to grab it before the... Uh, the, the nails start hitting and the, and the garment is uh, damaged with blood. All right. Matthew 27, 35, Mark 15, 24, Luke 23, 34. B, kind of divide that verse into two um, only because, only because why? Why did I do that? Oh, because um, his actual intercessory prayer, we're going to see under point uh, E. Yeah, Luke's order is slightly askew from Matthew, Mark, and John here. Uh, so they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And then the, the most complete detail comes in John. John 19, verses 23 and 24 showing the fulfillment from Psalm 22, John 19, verses 23 and 24. And this is interesting, and I think this is noteworthy. 
because it, it prevents us from getting sloppy in our eschatology. It prevents us from getting um, fast and loose with prophecy fulfillment. It shows us how awesome God is when he gives information that seemingly is contradictory, but is not contradictory whatsoever. It's actually complementary. Both statements are true. John 19, verses 23 and 24. Uh, this is our first look at John today, isn't it? So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. Jesus, therefore, went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. All right, so here's your validation for having Jesus carry it part of the way, and then part of the way, then uh, Simon is drafted to carry it the rest of the way. Um there they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. We'll talk about the inscription here in a moment uh, in verses uh, 19 through 22. Then verse 23, the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier. So this is true. They divided his garments. But it's also true that there was one garment that was undivided. One garment for which they cast lots. And so uh, the outer garments, they made four parts and a part to every soldier. Also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. And so this was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them and... For my clothing, they cast lots. See, two statements that are found there in Psalm 22. And two statements that might be thought of as being contradictory. Well, what, what, which is it? Did they divide the garments up or did they cast lots? Both. Both are true. All right? We don't, we don't fall for the either or. I love this. This happens on a number of occasions. You know, the, the, uh, the, you got one prophet that talks about Bethlehem. You got another prophet that talks about Galilee of the Gentiles. You got another prophet that talks about out of Egypt I called my son. <laughs> okay? And you're looking at the prophets and saying, well, which is it? Is it either? Is it Bethlehem or Egypt? Or is it Galilee of the Gentiles? What is it? Yes. All of the above. All right? Don't be, uh, don't be, uh, prideful or, um, arrogant. The, uh, which I think is what it really comes down to. I think those that insist that there's contradictions in the Bible, um, they want to insist that there's contradictions to the Bible because they don't want to believe the Bible. They don't want to obey the Bible. And so if they convince themselves that none of it's true or that there's so many contradictions you can't possibly know what's true, then they can assuage their conscience and say, well, you know, I don't have to obey it because it's not true. Or how do I know what's true? You end up with even King Zedekiah saying, you prophets are a bunch of liars. Because one prophet told him he was going to die in Babylon. Another prophet told him, you'll never see Babylon. And so how does Zedekiah respond to that? He says, all right, one of you is a liar, and I can't believe either of you. Well, they were both true. What Zedekiah didn't realize was that they were going to put his eyes out. Okay, he was going to see his his son slain before his eyes. The last thing he would see would be his kids killed. And then they were going to gouge his eyes out. And then they were going to take him in chains to Babylon. So he will never see Babylon. And yet he would die in Babylon. Both prophets were true. And every time you come to this either or thing where a, a skeptic might say, well, which is it? It can't be both. Time and time and time again, God has proven both are true. If he says it, he means it, and he brings it to uh, fulfillment. And so we have it here in the uh, the divided garments. And um, I find this remarkable. This uh, fulfilled prophecies, multiple prophecies. Let's, let's go back to Psalm 22 and take a look at it. We have, I don't know where the time flies. We've really been 54 minutes into the study already. How does that happen? Psalm 
I love Psalm 22 because it's so uh, easy. It's a Psalm of David. It's a thousand BC. All right, it's more than a millennium before Christ. And yet you read through this and you see the cross. It's it's even you know. You can't help but see the cross. And and some skeptics, you know, they don't. They, they, they cringe at the idea that there is a God, that He can write things ahead of time, He can prophesy things ahead of time. And they, they don't want to admit that, so they like the liberal theologians that tell them that there is no prophecy in the Bible, that forgers came along afterwards and, and uh, wrote up the things after the fact to make it look like a prophecy. You can't do that with Psalm 22. Okay? You can't do that with Psalm 22. It was written too long ago. It was a Psalm of David's. It's in the Septuagint. Clearly it was written before Christ. And yet we have Christ at His cross throughout this entire chapter. Specifically, we're looking at verse 18, but there's all the verses in here. Verse 18, They divide my garments among them. That's true. And for my clothing they cast lots. That's also true. Both statements are true. But look how this chapter begins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're going to see that, that Jesus cries out at the ninth hour. He cries out at the conclusion of His work in the darkness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now my question is, is that where He stopped? Or did He recite the entirety of Psalm 22 from memory? I wonder if He, if he did. I suspect maybe He did. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. In Jesus' case, it was both day and night within the span of six hours. Okay? Right there on the cross. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. So you understand David in 1000 B.C. is saying this. That he is going to trust in the Lord today because the Lord has always been faithful with his forefathers. The Lord's always been faithful with him. The Lord's going to stay faithful. And Jesus, a thousand years later, says the same thing. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Didn't we just read that a few minutes ago? Isn't this what the Pharisees were mocking him with, the chief priests and the scribes? The Lord delights in him. Let him rescue him. They're quoting Scripture and fulfilling Scripture. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. It's going to go on to describe these things. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. There are certain tests that you will face alone. And yet, are you alone if God's with you? Okay. In Jesus' case, though he was alone, the Father and Son shrouded, or the Father and the Holy Spirit shrouded him in darkness. Many bowls have surrounded me. Think those are zoological animals. Strong bowls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. Okay, and I didn't include this in the vocabulary. I think it's a metaphor here in this uh, rather than uh, a vision. But in any event, I am poured out like water. Well, we know who the roaring lion is, right? He prowls about like a roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. This, I believe, is what's going to be referenced at the end when the work is done, and he says, I thirst. He says, I thirst. And he will take the one drink from the sponge, and uh, he needs the hyssop to finish the Passover work. So he says, I thirst, and he drinks from the sponge, and then he says, tetelestai, and breathes his last. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. Verse 16. They pierced my hands and my feet. A thousand B.C. and crucifixion had not yet been invented. Alright. 
The Persians invented it. The Persians developed, well, first of all, they would impale on a sharp stake. And then later on, they would experiment with different impalings. And later on, they would learn how to impale uh, uh, arms and feet. Later on, they, they would develop it over time. The Romans took well, the, uh, the Persian practice and, uh, and mastered it. The Romans became the preeminent crucifiers of the ancient world. The crucifixion was unknown. 1000 B.C. when David wrote this. So you've got a week now to think about this. Why did David write these words? What was it that David saw? What caused... When was David's... When were his feet pierced? When were his hands pierced? When were... When did they divide David's garments? When did they cast lots for David's garments? Was there an event in the life of David that this psalm was based on? Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the privilege we have to study these details and help us, Father, to understand the totality of everything that took place, including our redemption, including our redemption, including the uh, blood of the new covenant on behalf of Israel, including the reconciliation of things in the heavens and on the earth, including the preparation of the high priest, including the shedding of the blood that cleanses the heavenly temple including all things that were taking place on this, on this day. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.